From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Group headquarters at 350 Francogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the future of sustainability reporting, resilience, there's now an app for that, Singapore aims to be the world's first smart nation, and the circular economy hits the G7 and the USA. What goes around comes around this week on 350. It's April 1st, 2016. No fooling. Uh, welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm here, as always, with Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. <laughs> April Fool's Day. Oh, yeah. Uh, Not getting tricked this year by those phony press releases. I don't think I've ever fallen for that. We tried to uh, perpetuate those, but, you know, Grist always does such a good job, and I don't know yet as of this recording whether they will have come up with something brilliant this year, but <laughs> I hope they do, and I hope it worked. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been uh, another great week. We've had some visitors come through the office from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, the uh, UK-based entity that this week has opened a U.S. branch. Uh, they launched um, on Thursday the uh, uh, Circular Economy 100 here in San Francisco, and um, and like and I was in Colorado. Yeah, how was that? I understand you were talking energy. Talking energy. I mean, this was the um, the annual meeting of the Joint Institute for Strategic Energy Analysis, J-I-S-E-A. I'm not going to dare pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a little bit of a mouthful. It is. Um, it's part of uh, NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado, which is, of course, one of the Department of Energy's um, U.S. labs and uh, focusing, as obviously in the name, on renewable energy. And they have an annual meeting that brings together a number of people to look at the future of energy and the grid. Uh, really interesting group of people from from utilities, from Brookings Institution, from research labs, uh, from uh, Department of Energy, Department of State, and uh, and some companies like uh, GE and Walmart and Pacific Gas and Electric company um, really you know sort of looking at at the future of renewable energy so were you talking about ppas all that kind of stuff or what was your focus well i was doing a keynote thing and so i didn't get too into the weeds there i think there was plenty of that already i was looking a little more strategically at um at where the world's going. I was talking about uh, Verge and the convergence of technologies and how that's become a key part of the energy conversation, both for renewables and efficiency. Uh, I was talking about uh, the topic of my forthcoming book that's coming out in June um, about uh, the you know, this grand strategy for America that was born at the Pentagon that embeds sustainability as a strategic national imperative and sort of how that vision of, of energy uh, engendering prosperity, security, and sustainability, but most important of all, resilience. Um, that's really a theme that I've been writing about. You'll be hearing a lot more about that relentlessly, as any good uh, book author uh, will be doing as this thing comes out in June. Yeah, I'm still waiting for my advance copy. Thank you very much. Well, it's in the mail. <laughs> I'm waiting for, you know, it comes off the press in May, so you'll be right up there at the top of the list, Lauren, I can promise you. But Enough about me, enough about that event. Let's go to the Week in Review. I 
have to say before we get in any specific stories, it was a really good week for Green Biz stories. I mean, they're all good. You know, we, we've got this great team of you, Lauren, and Elsa Wenzel, uh, managing editor Barbara Grady, uh, Heather Clancy, Mike Hauer, and a whole community of, of contributors. But there are some great stories. We had a story from Jason Clay from WWF uh, talking about climate change and food. Uh, R.P. Siegel is doing a bunch of great stories. And we had one about how you combine centralized and distributed electricity. Um, our our great editor-at-large, David Crane, had a really provocative piece, although that a provocative D- David Crane piece has sort of become a redundancy, <laughs> um, about should clean energy companies be held to a higher standard? And this is somebody from the uh, utility and energy uh, industry. I don't know, it just seemed really high quality. But let's talk about the circular economy. Yeah, so the thing I really liked about this piece, it focused on sort of a concept that we're hearing more about in sustainability circles, for sure, the circular economy and sort of keeping materials in place, cycling them back through supply chains that could be cast off as sort of like a hippy dippy nice thing for companies to do. But this was about sort of taking that concept to the G7. So the big economies in the world, the US, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the UK all met last week and they had representatives from about 80 companies there talking about, quote unquote, the use of life cycle concepts in supply chain management. You know, it's sort of funny that that is in some ways such an old topic. Uh, the whole idea of supply chain and life cycle really goes back to the 90s, uh, if not the 80s. Um, but I can assure you, Lauren, that, that the circular economy, I know you were making a point there, is not in, even in the slightest a hippie-dippie concept. In fact, we're going to talk uh, a little bit later in this program about the visit we had from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and what they're doing in the U.S. with some of the companies that they're working with. Uh, but this is really interesting that I just find the circular economy fascinating for a number of reasons. But one is how quickly it's risen up to get the attention at the World Economic Forum. There's a working group there. You know, Ellen MacArthur has been spreading the gospel on this for a while, and now the G7. I mean, is there a sense that they're trying to do something together as a body? I think that's the idea. The European Union is actually holding a lot of hearings on this right now. We're looking into a story on sort of how Europe is leading the charge in all of this. Um, but the thinking at with the G7 meeting from Barbara's story, it sounds like, was to get a sense of real world examples. So make these concepts a little more concrete. Uh, GM is sort of a poster child in this Base. They came out a couple years ago and said they're making a billion dollars a year selling uh, reused materials. And a couple examples of those sort of automotive byproducts we're talking about, like recycled cardboard that can be used in headliners or plastic scraps and shipping aids used in radiator shrouds. So I've always been curious to talk to the people whose job it is to actually find these somewhat obscure things and then find smart ways to reuse them. Well, I think this is something we're going to be seeing more and more of. And, and I have to say that you know, most of the examples that you see around uh, the circular economy are ones that you might easily say, well, haven't they been doing that for years? And in some cases, that's true. Uh, I mean, GM has been working in zero waste for years and has forward. They've all been doing things where they're uh, turning one thing into another waste product becomes a resource for for a new material or, or product. But so this is really getting going. And but I think one of the things we're going to see that this starts off kind of slowly, like uh, so many other things, solar energy, electric cars, and all of a sudden one day it turns the corner and we just see everybody doing it. We're still in that slow 
slow growth period, but um, a number of companies are, you see in the story that Barbara wrote, just now coming on board this. But let's switch topics to uh, two interesting pieces about uh, reporting and analytics around sustainability and around uh, environmental, social, and governance topics. The first one was by our reporter, Keith Larson. Uh, He wrote about a new rating system rolled out by Morningstar, which is the big uh, rating company for mutual funds, to look at sustainability rankings for mutual funds. What's going on here? This is a ranking system for environmental, social, and governance, ESG performance, that compares companies to their industry peers. So this is something we've definitely been seeing more of sort of across the board in sustainability, sort of like a forced transparency, if you will, where you've got third parties stacking companies up against one another. Um, But the deal with Morningstar, they're looking at over 21,000 mutual and exchange-traded funds globally with a total of $13 trillion in assets under management. But it's sort of framed, uh, Keith had this great quote, it's about sort of, it really does democratize access to more sustainable investments. And this is part of a trend that we're, we're seeing that financial institutions, the big uh, equity firms like BlackRock and Goldman Sachs uh, have been making a push towards introducing funds that target sustainable companies. But this is about what's the sustainability profile of the more uh, traditional mainstream funds and how do we start to look at uh, how they comp- how they rank uh, compared to their industry peers. So that's an important uh, development. And I think as, you know, as more and more companies uh, start and investors uh, really start to look at, at those metrics and all that information, by the way, is now something you can call up in your Bloomberg terminals or, or wherever. <laughs> it's a, it's available real time. Um, and it, so it's going to be much more prevalent. But speaking of real time data, that was the topic of another piece by senior writer Mike Hauer. Mm-hmm. So Mike was looking at uh, some new research from the Global Reporting Initiative, lovingly known as GRI. Um, and so this was looking at sort of the next era of corporate disclosure, getting beyond these sort of stagnant annual PDFs that companies release once a year, like 200 pages with God knows what, like metric and KPIs for everything related to the environment. And that makes sense because sustainability reports are almost by definition you know, backwards looking data, They're looking at performance performance data from 12 or 18 or even 24 months back. And why should we wait once a year for that when you can have, uh, you know, in this day and age of, of big data and, and real-time information that you can have, uh, be, be updating these things all the time. I mean, the thing is that if you're in a company, sometimes the energy data uh, is on a different schedule than the waste data, which is on a different schedule than the reporting data that you do for the EPA's uh, toxic release inventory. And so they're all on different schedules anyway. And to try and freeze frame that at any one time doesn't make sense. So I love this idea of being able to go online and see a given company's reporting in that moment. Yeah, this came up last year. I was at a big sustainability event down at Facebook's campus in Silicon Valley. And the, it, it was an interesting group sort of set up as a debate over whether or not sustainability reporting in its current form is obsolete. And you had a woman from BlackRock to the point about how financiers are looking at all of this saying this information that's included in a lot of annual sustainability reports is really worthless. It sort of selectively includes 
includes things that make the company look good. Um, and then you also had people from companies, I believe HP and Microsoft were represented on that panel as well saying like, yeah, and it's also really a pain internally <laughs> to do these. Um, so it does seem like we're sort of at a point where there needs to be sort of a fundamental rethinking of the data that's included and how it's presented. And they're also like with so many of these things, there also is a little bit of possibly a government or regulatory driver. The European Union, for instance, Mike points out, um, is now requiring certain companies to publicly report on more ESG information. Um, So this is all part of this fast evolving world of how sustainability fits in to companies' mainstream reporting obligations. But you did make a good, interesting point there that this is a pain point for so many companies. And one of the questions that we always have to ask here is, is this trip necessary? Are these reports really all that necessary? And I I know a number of the companies uh, at our GreenBiz Executive Networks network have questioned that, you know, is this something we really should be doing? Is it worth the the pain and suffering and time and expense it takes? Or is there a better way to do it? So maybe this real-time data uh, will will get to that better way. And the other, the flip side of that is that it may mean that reporting season rather than once a year is, you know, 24-7, 365. <laughs> So, Lauren, you had a piece this week about Singapore, not a topic that we uh, normally cover, but it, we do cover uh, smart cities, smart, resilient, sustainable cities, and uh, lots of those. But, but you wrote a piece about Singapore aiming to become the world's first smart city state, the first, in other words, the first smart nation. Exactly. So Singapore is really interesting because it has this unique scale. It's a little bit smaller than New York City, the entire country is. Uh, they've got about 5.5 million residents now, and that's grown about 2 million people uh, since 1990 alone. So it's really uh, this little microcosm of like a very fast growing city. It's also an island. So sort of a petri dish for a lot of these issues around climate change and resilience. And they also have this already pretty developed tech industry there. Facebook and Google already have offices. They have some favorable tax policies that have helped make that happen. Uh, And they also happen to be the third richest country in the world. So I was very curious when I heard that they have a a technology outfit, an investment group in San Francisco, to find out sort of how that all fits in with these much broader trends towards smart cities and building infrastructure for the 21st century. I think one of the things that enables this is the fact that they, for years, almost 10 years now, have been planning the, the one of the world's fastest uh, uh, broadband systems. Um, there was just a report that came out uh, last month that ranked the U.S. as 55th in terms of download speeds, but, but Singapore, I think, was first. Exactly. So the idea is that now that the infrastructure is in place, Singapore is trying to build up its own startup scene on the ground in Southeast Asia. Obviously, they can provide access to other markets like China and other countries nearby. But I went over to Soma, this trendy south of market neighborhood in San Francisco, just down the street from the AT&T Park where the San Francisco Giants play. And in this sort of two-level minimalist loft office, it had sort of all the usual startup per 
works, like the glass-enclosed conference room and the neon signage and all of that. Um, And it was right across the street from Oculus Rift, the virtual reality company that Facebook owns. So I sat down with Victor. At least you think you were across the street from Oculus Rift. I don't know. Virtual reality, you never really know. Now I have to question everything. (laughs) Um, But so I was talking to Victor Tan, who runs Block 71 is what they call this. It's sort of uh, the official outpost for the investment arm of Singapore's National Technology Agency. And he has seen about 60 startups cycle through this program. They can get equity-free investments. Uh, Equity-free is certainly not how the venture capitalists out here tend to operate, so that's a potential draw. It's all part of this plan that Singapore has put together called Smart Nation, uh, where they're aiming to become sort of a testbed for this smart city technology like Internet of Things sensors, self-driving cars. Uh, There's just starting to get into green building and renewable energy. Uh, But with the government being willing to spend on infrastructure like high-speed internet, that puts it in a pretty different category from American cities that are obviously, for good reason, very concerned about the business models and the return on taxpayer money with all of this. Well, what's the sustainability in play in all this? What is the impact all this technology has on on Singapore is as a sustainability leader, or is that something they're even trying to do? Yeah, so I mean, sort of the name of the game is efficiency, efficiency, efficiency. Uh, they do limit the number of personal cars that you're allowed to have in Singapore because it's so small. Uh, and I was also told, Victor said that a Toyota Camry will cost you about a hundred grand in Singapore just because it's, even though it's so close to where the cars are made in Japan, there's a high premium on driving one. Yeah, but that must include the rust proofing oh god um i don't know i should have asked uh but uh so the transportation is a big part of this you need to have really efficient transportation even more so than the u.s cities like san francisco that are worried about traffic clogging all the freeways and then food i think is another really interesting note of this public health is sort of a big emphasis in the smart nation plan and since singapore's again such a small geographic area they're gonna have to get creative with vertical farming urban farming uh but they they can't just be relying on imports uh when they've got this many people to feed now so did you get a sense of how this is going to benefit us? Are those some of these technologies and innovations and models going to uh, migrate over to uh, our neck of the woods? Uh, that's certainly what Singapore is hoping. Uh, they want to be sort of the test bed for all of this smart city technology since, again, they do have this interesting scale to test everything out. Um, Steve Leonard, who's the executive deputy chairman of the Infocom Development Authority of Singapore, IDA, that is the sort of tech agency with in the government uh, said that that's not necessarily being a guinea pig in a negative sense where they can be hung out to dry financially and all of this, but they do want to be the place uh, that he's, he wouldn't name names, but he said pretty much all of the big automakers they're talking to, uh, the tech companies that are interested in self-driving cars to see how what the government would have to do to let them really bring their technology to bear in Singapore. Um, another part of this though, that hasn't come up is sort of the tech talent side, talent, the ever popular topic. Um, and there's a new fellowship. This is actually why I got hooked up with these guys in the first place. There's a new fellowship based around 
around this smart nation concept where they're recruiting people. They don't have to be Singaporean. They can be from anywhere, but they have to be willing to spend at least three months on the ground in Singapore to test these technologies. So this will be sort of an interesting litmus test, I think, for how you translate the hype around things like Internet of Things sensors and how they could make everything more efficient to a real life living city. So part of the parade of people coming through the Green Biz office uh, this week was uh, five people from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. That's the UK-based group, uh, Ellen MacArthur, uh, and uh, a group of some dozens of, of employees now who are, and for the last five years, been promoting this idea of the circular economy, uh, how material flows continue indefinitely and, and leading to new new levels of innovation and uh, resource efficiency and carbon, water, energy, materials, uh, throughputs, efficiency. It's really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. uh, Ellen MacArthur was also on the stage at GreenBiz 16 in Phoenix last month. And I happen to know that we published a video this week on our website of her keynote. So we'll be sure to link to that as well. But Joel, you were talking to them sort of more granularly about some work they're doing in the US. Yeah, we were talking about, first of all, the different ways we can work together with them. Them. And uh, the reason they were here is that on Thursday, they launched the uh, CE100 in the United States. Now, the CE100, Circular Economy 100, is a group that, that they put together to bring big companies, uh, but as well as academics and, and cities and states, government entities, and uh, a few others to, to look at how do we significantly move this forward faster. If this is not just a study group. They are working on solutions on, on how do we build circular economy models, thinking capacity uh, and and ultimately to transform companies, you know, to get them into the space thinking about their products through the lens of, of closed loop and continuous uh, cycling of materials and, and uh, ingredients. Um, so uh, really exciting stuff. And, and of course, now uh, with uh, one or two feet firmly planted in the U.S., we they were all here and really, really interesting stuff that they're doing. And uh, I pulled aside Casper Yorna, who is the CE100 program lead. So, Casper, tell me why you're launching the Circular 100 in the U.S. Sure. So, we have seen quite a tremendous uptake of the circular economy idea globally. And uh, through our work over the last three years in the C100 uh, international program, we've seen that there is a tremendous uh, interest and uptake in in, uh, U.S.-based companies. Um, And these companies are increasingly asking, okay, we're, if we are, if we can see that this is such a momentum and such a such a drive globally, how does that work in a national context? So, what are the opportunities in the U.S. and and, and companies need and organizations in general need a little bit of help to sort of create the network and create the learning uh, and help them uh, sort of help them with the learning, um, collaborate and, um, and and get really stuff done. Um, and so that's what what the U.S. program is, is all about. Um, the C100 U.S. enables companies here in the U.S. Uh, to to develop new opportunities, to build that network, to to, uh, uncover characteristics uh, here in the market. 
And what does it mean to be a member of the CE100? So uh, you're not just signing up to the idea of the circular economy. Uh, you're actually um, painting a vision for yourself as a company, what it should be like. And, and you, you go about on a journey on implementing that. And that's a three-year journey. Uh, so you start with, with learning, building that network, and actually developing collaborations. And so being part of, the, of, that, of that community uh, means that there are like-minded organizations uh, there that you can just pick up the phone and call and develop a new a new opportunity with um, and it also means that you you run into the same uh, organizations to develop these uh, kind of collaborations over and over again how do you think US companies uh, are more or less ready than European companies or any are there, are there any differences in terms of their readiness to be thinking about circular economy models um, I, well that that's probably hard to say because in the international program we work with so many different companies all together so I don't think there will be a difference between necessarily in how they take it up although I must say that I'm quite intrigued about how US organizations grab uh, companies they grab an idea and they run with it and uh, as the as the the idea of a circular economy the framework is spreading uh, I think the US uh, or US based organizations they're going to really wrap their hand, head around this quickly and they're going to run to it and we're seeing examples there already so we're working with US companies like um, uh, Dell and eBay and HP and IBM uh, SunPower and we have some interesting ones lined up as well and so they're starting to wrap their head around it and actually develop new new things and that's going to go fast can you give an example of one of those companies that you just mentioned that's yeah. actually moving in a certain direction of what we might see coming from them uh, in the next year or two or three? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question. And and one such company that actually works both on an inter, in the international program as well here in the, in the U.S. is SunPower, the, the solar panel manufacturer. And what we have seen with them is, is quite impressive. Over the last uh, one and a half, two, three years, they have fundamentally thought differently how they are going to set up their factories, design their panels, and even operate the models around that. So not having to potentially always buy a panel, but you maybe just pay for the electricity that that panel provides you. So you get sort of renewable energy as a service. Um, and and that, that opens up whole new markets and allows SunPower to take back some of the panels, remanufacture them, take into the old materials, make a new panel out of that, and creates an economy that actually can survive long term. What do you think is driving these companies, U.S. or outside, uh, to be doing this? Is it is it opportunity? Is it competitive pressure? Is it fear of risk or other things? What's the big driver? Oh, definitely the opportunity uh, by a long shot. It's it's. Uh, it's an inspirational piece. It's it's driving innovation. It's opening up new markets, um, and and it's all about developing new business. And so this uh, this idea uh, aligns a lot of the traditional uh, challenging things like how do you manage risk in your supply chain with um, how do you uncover new uh, new markets. It it puts a point on the horizon and allows you to, to run at that full speed and innovate along the way. So this is your kind of big entry into the U.S. market. Um, talk a little bit about what you see, the bigger vision of, of the circular economy in the U.S. market for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation beyond the CE100. Yeah, sure. So uh, I think in, in general, with something as systemic and, and changing as 
uh, an idea of changing the economy, um, we're starting to maybe know 10, 15%, and we uncover new areas every day. Uh, and and similarly with with the with the US as well. So building that platform and and developing these new opportunities and getting that momentum going, um, that's going to profoundly change how how um, uh, it, it's it's of an exponential nature. So we'll see little bits in a, in the very near future. Uh, and as that grows, it will not just be with business. It will be with academics. It will be in the, in the governments and city space. And it's also in, in, in the area of affiliate um, uh, and um, institutions and, and think tanks uh, who, are, who are driving this on a much broader level. And you're just getting going. And we're just getting going. I'm very excited. We've been in the U.S. in and out uh, now uh, a year. Um, we have set up uh, local offices. We've been around. So we're, we're getting, uh, we, we're not just getting to know the market, but we're already working with some of the key, the key players here. Uh, and so it's going to be a tremendously exciting time. And we're really excited that you've uh, brought on uh, Chris Gunther, our good friend, formerly with the Think Tank uh, Sustainability, now going to be uh, heading up your U.S. operations. Yeah, yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to have him on board. He he knows uh, the U.S. well. He's very well versed in the topic. Uh, he's experienced in building relationships with key organizations, business driving change. Uh, and so he'll be leading the U.S. organization uh, and the U.S., um, uh, the C100 USA uh, and the program. It's um, Yeah, we're really glad to have him on board. Great. Well, we're looking forward to good things from him and from you. Casper uh, Yorna, who runs the CE100 for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, thanks so much for being here and congratulations on the launch. It's uh, been a pleasure and a great, uh, great being here. probably heard us talk on this podcast before about the concept of resilience and that is girding an area usually at the city scale for all sorts of shocks that they might encounter whether that's related to things like climate change and the higher risk of extreme weather or geopolitical instability and uh, social unrest things like income inequality those can all affect how a city operates day to day and sort of the long-term sustainability of an area this week our senior writer barbara grady took a look at how technology is being applied in this space and she is here now how's it going barbara good how are you lauren good good so what's going on here what's uh new we we keep hearing more about resilience um, but i understand that the concept has made it to a very high place yeah so last week the white house released a bundle of apps that use open data, government data, and all sorts of data sources to find opportunities. Basically, it's an upward mobility play. The White House calls it the Opportunity Project, and it bundled both its own government data and 12 apps from the private sector and nonprofits. And that was pretty interesting. Yeah. So who all is involved in this? It sounds like maybe some smaller like startup or nonprofit groups that people haven't heard of, but also some bigger players, especially in the real estate world. Yeah. So we have Redfin and Zillow, both big real estate players. Esri, a big data player. They all produced apps that can help people find things within cities, as in um, where to find good schools or where to find public transit near where you live. There's an app that describes uh, job listings that you can get to on public transit within 30 minutes. And then there was a group from nonprofits, so PolicyLink and um, actually some universities, Brandeis University also had their offerings. And then a, there's one from a local company right here, Streetwise, 
that's in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we I under, you talked to Antwi, who is the founder of Streetwise, but I also wanted to get back to sort of the scope of these apps. We hear a lot, I think, about open data, obviously, sort of one particular niche of the whole big data craze. Um, but what is sort of the potential upshot uh, from an environmental perspective? I think one of the the upshots of this is to promote cities as as a great place to live still and places where people can better themselves and climb the economic ladder and make good use of all this data that's out there. Mm-hmm. So definitely part of the whole urbanization wave that we're hearing more about. And so I guess part of the the question with all of this is how will this technology be adopted? I know there are uh, cities that are playing around with using technology to more efficiently deliver city services. Like maybe you'll be able to text a picture of a pothole and then the agency responsible for road maintenance will come fix it faster. But how do you or, or are any of the people you interviewed looking at how you you get mass sort of resident adoption in a city or it seems like people could be sort of left out of this if it's done in a top-down way yeah exactly that's why we looked most closely at streetwise because it's its app is built around human-centered design where people using the app contribute to the data they contribute what's called local knowledge their observation of what's happening Uh, yes this bus line works yes this is a great park um, there, there, and cultural amenities of a neighborhood, and therefore it's what those um, founders call people-powered placemaking. Dr. Antwi Akom is the founder of Streetwise, and he described it very well in this in this interview we had with him. What we realized about three years ago was that communities need a way to tell their own stories. And if we're really going to be serious about human-centered design or what we call people-powered placemaking, um, then we actually need to develop uh, technology tools that can put the power back in the hands of everyday people. And so that was pretty much the, the birth of Streetwise. So you have sort of a new urbanist movement that talks about making communities more walkable and more bikeable right. and affordable housing workable and all of these things. But what's missing from that conversation is really making communities more equitable for the folks who are most disproportionately impacted for our nation's most vulnerable population. And so most cities and jurisdictions then, because the two greatest challenges of our lifetime are around climate change and income inequality. And so most cities are really grappling with this disconnect between official knowledge and what cities want to do as they grow and develop and what everyday people want to do with public space and land use and transportation as the city grows and develops and the affordable housing crisis begins to become more intense for everyone based on income inequality. And Streetwise is a kind of platform that can close that gap between official knowledge and local knowledge amongst a number of different verticals. So we'll give you an example. If you looked at an open data set from open Oakland. If Barbara was looking at this or if Mayor Shafts was looking at this and she looked at East Oakland, you would see all of the, on our platform, they appear as purple dots. And it would show that East Oakland, according to open open data, mm-hmm. uh, as well as the Alameda County Department of Public Health, looks like a food oasis. But if you use Streetwise and you ground truth that data, what you begin to see is that instead of it being a food oasis, those purple dots are really liquor stores or corner stores and only a handful of grocery stores. 
interesting stuff. I'm sure this is a story that we will only continue to hear more about. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. Sure. Have a great day. Well, that's a wrap for this week, another 350 podcast. You can always find the links to the organization's stories, events, and other things we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com slash 350. Thanks this week to our own Lauren Hepler for doing double duty as podcast engineer as well as co-host. You're a multitasker and uh, sitting in this week for the vacationing Saria Malconian. You can subscribe to Greenbiz 350 through channels such as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Uh, if there's a place that you'd like to see it, uh, offered up, let us know. Just send us an email along with any other comments you have to 350 at greenbiz.com. And for all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.